five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Welcome to the second episode in this year's summer series, where we feature three compelling talks from other creators. In this week's episode, we hear from Jennifer Fogarty, who will speak on the human system protecting human health and performance to enable deep space exploration. Dr. Fogarty is NASA's Human Research Program Chief Scientist. The talk was featured on the August 14th Future in Space Operations Weekly Teleconference. The slides are available with the podcast on our website with the URL link in the show description. Listen in. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and thanks for the invite. Uh, great group to talk to. Um, happy to kind of give you guys the background on what the Human Research Program is here at Johnson Space Center and how we go about our business. Um, I appreciate that everyone is on mute, so um, anytime you'd like to interrupt, uh, just give me a, a shout-out, and I will slow down and ask you what your question is and try to be responsive. So as the title slide said, I am the Chief Scientist for the Human Research Program. I've been doing this for about 18 months now. Prior to that, I was the deputy. I was deputy to Dr. John Charles, you might be familiar with, and I know you're familiar with Dr. Mark Shellhammer, who's spoken before at this forum. I talked to him about two weeks ago about um, speaking to this group, and uh, it was a good opportunity. So him and I got caught up a little bit at the ISS R&D conference. So we move off the title slide to slide one. I'm going to open the talk, uh, as I normally do with most of my audiences, to remind folks this is kind of where the humans start, right? The, the resources we think about um, having at our disposal, the food, the water, the air quality, and I get we can talk about issues with that right now, but in general, 21% O2. Uh, but people do live in extreme environments, even on this planet, and, and vary with their resource, um, what resources they have around them. So we do know something about putting the human in extreme environments and how it adapts to that process um, and when the adaptation can uh, really enable health and performance and sometimes when that adaptation can lead to some negative outcomes and how you monitor the human during the adaption process to know which direction it's going to go in. And a lot of times you don't want to wait till symptoms arise. So can you catch things at a subclinical level? The example being high altitude. Um, there are various reasons why someone might have an adverse event going to altitude. Um, even the most fit people and sometimes the most fit people um, have some of the, the more dramatic outcomes. Why? Because their body is so well-tuned to a different environment, it doesn't have all the reserve and the resilience to adapt very quickly. It, isn't, it doesn't have that dynamic component to it. Um, but when you go to altitude, you could wind up with a variety of conditions, including a lot of fluid building up in your lungs or in your brain uh, affecting your eyes. And that's why we often look at high-altitude exposure uh, as an analogy to what we see in astronauts who are having some changes in the back of their eye and the brain with the fluid shift. So these are some kind of tools that we try to look at biology across different environments to understand what is it we know about spaceflight and the risks it pose to humans now, and how do we anticipate how that risk will change or not with the different durations that are being proposed uh, for spaceflight exploration. Of course, if we go to the next slide, um, ultimately, for exploration or destination is a mission to Mars. Uh, clearly, a much different looking planet, a much more austere environment, a toxic environment. So, the vehicle we build and the habitats we build will essentially have to amount to an exoplanet. So, uh, the, the resources we'll have to provide for the human during both the transit and, say, um, landing on the surface will have to provide them everything they need for basic survival. But even more than that, because we expect them to be capable of doing a job, a job that has uh, cognitive demands, a job that has physical demands. So how do you engineer such a system to sustain a person over the durations of time and really account for um, how they will be changing, both 
chronologically, because we also think of that, that in the background, um, these humans will be aging and changing in concert with the pressures of the mission. And how can those, those pressures, um, affect each other? Could they be additive or synergistic? And that also speaks to something I'll talk on a little bit, which is the space flight hazards alone, the exposure, when we start to experience them simultaneously, will that change the effect on the, the human system in terms of a lot of those stressors use the same biochemical pathways? Um, and so when you do microgravity, space radiation in the, the GCR sense, the galactic cosmic rays, uh, when you have extreme isolation and confinement, um, do you start to create a synergistic environment that we can't use, say, the experience in low Earth orbit by itself to anticipate today? Our program itself is really chartered to not only characterize the risks, but design countermeasures um, to reduce the risk. And the countermeasure could be put in place before a mission, during a mission, or even after a mission. And that's where, from an agency perspective and a human system perspective, we resemble an occupational health model. Can we engineer it out? And when I say that, I mean both could we find a way to do preventive medicine with people that we buy down the likelihood of an emerging disease state before they ever go? Could we engineer the vehicle, things like radiation shielding, prevent the exposure? Can we design the environmental control and life support in a way that we know at this point we're still trying to understand, even though the low levels of CO2 that their crew members are exposed to is higher than terrestrial, how provocative is that in the background as a running stressor? Um, so all of those things kind of need to be accounted for, and sometimes they're hard to quantify, and then they can be very disparate um, from from a data perspective in terms of comparison for a, a total risk analysis. But we hand a lot of this data and its synthesis over to a board called the Human System Risk Board, which I can talk a little bit more about, which resides in our Human Health and Performance Directorate and also is a delegated board from the Office of the Chief Health and Medical Officer, who's at NAS headquarters, who really is the one um, in charge of making standards uh, for the missions, you know, the levels of care that we will need, uh, what levels of standards of health and performance do the crew members have to meet, as well as the standards for, say, the vehicle design implications when you're going to fly a human. So for slide four, when I try to give these talks to give people perspective on what we're doing, and of course we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of landing on the moon, our charge is really try to replace the amazing work that's been done by the rovers on the service of mapping both the topography and the presence of in-situ resource, resources that might be present and the characteristics of the Mars surface with human blueprints uh, and everything it will entail to get us there. We're going to move on to slide five. Um, talk a little bit more about our program itself. Um, we were born out of a process of change that happened during the Constellation era. Um, before the Human Research Program existed as it's known today, um, there was a research funding entity at headquarters called CODU. And the charter at the time was not as crisp as a applied research designed to buy down risk for exploration. It was a little bit uh, more broad spectrum a lot more influenced by that concept of, you know, just generating knowledge. Um, so a lot of variety of studies were developed. They also had some guiding documentation that was called the Bioastronautics Roadmap, which folks may be familiar with. And it it was um, an earlier iteration of kind of the risks that we track today um, to try to identify what areas really required research, what didn't we know, what did we know was a problem when we needed to know how to solve. So we still have a similar approach in terms of you break down your work into the known things, um, the known changes. They represent risks for the future. We have gaps in knowledge about those risks. Um, so we try to identify work to address the gaps so we can select specific tasks. In other areas, areas our work is much more um, characteristic. It's the I don't know what I don't know. So how do you do good enough surveillance to try to find the signal in the noise, and that sometimes is more about the data analysis after you've done a lot of surveillance. So we use some data analytic tools to help us identify those red flags. And some of them are the crew members themselves as they experience spaceflight today. Um, and then it's a matter of understanding, well, was there 
is that a predisposition in the individual plus the stressor, or was it just merely a predisposition in the individual that we didn't identify because we, didn't ha- we don't have the medical tools to do so? So it, there are often um, a lot of debate um, about when you first have an incident happen with a crew member, does it constitute a new risk generically to humans in spaceflight, or is this something we have to understand for the individual? And um, my in my prior life before I joined HRP, I was in space medicine supporting the physicians uh, to do risk assessment in that way and also to understand how could research inform what operations does even of today, no less in the future for, oper- uh, for exploration. <clears throat> I think we'll go on to slide six. So our structure, if you interact with the human research program, we're broken into uh, segments we call elements. Um, we have the space radiation element, um, really dedicated to understanding the effect of space radiation with the goal of understanding what what limits should be set, what they're called permissible exposure limits, and that really should be based on a functional outcome, um, meaning in mission, if you had exposures that created performance deficits, say, in someone's cognitive function, um, how do we manage that that exposure and that limit and the biological effect? Could we design a countermeasure to help be more uh, resistant to the biological effect? And, of course, for a long time, the discussion has been the manifestation of cancer, which is the long-term health risk after an exposure to something like space radiation. Interestingly enough, and we truly recognize that these stressors and also within the body, the human will experience spaceflight in its totality. They're not mutually exclusive, so the cross-risk issues. So the next element, and some of these, I always describe the the elements as a convenient way to get work done, to do, uh, you know, program and project management. And the structure is not meant to, um, you know, inhibit cross-risk and cross-discipline discussion, but it, unfortunately, it does create some stovepipes, and we've done a lot of work to try to, to break those stovepipes up. So our second element on the list is human health and countermeasures that really focuses on the, the physiology. And of the hazards, um, it's really the altered gravity environment that is is the one that they tend to zero in on. How does the body change in spaceflight um, due to not having gravity impart its stress on the body 24-7 as it does here? Um, and how, when you're adapting to microgravity, does that change the likelihood um, of a performance or health outcome? Um, a lot of what we understand about the effect of microgravity is can be a little disconcerting because when you watch the body adapt, it's really hard to know if it's going toward a negative direction or not. And also the phrase altered gravity also tries to capture gravity transitions. Some of the most provocative things we do to the human um, are the rapid gravity transitions. So on launch, within a couple of hours, you go from 1G, experiencing multiple G during the flight profile, into 0G or near 0G, micro G. Um, your body's hydrostatic gradient is disrupted. It goes through um, an acute phase and then into, you know, over days and weeks and months into a longer phase uh, ad- adaptive kind of response to that. And then as we do long duration space flight night right now, we land people on the order of hours. So we take them from microgravity and then we put them back in 1G, um, again, with maybe a multiple G exposure during the landing for, for minutes or seconds or minutes. But that G transition, while the uphill one from one to zero can be very provocative and, and cause a bunch of change uh, and create a lot of instability initially, like with space motion sickness, the the G transition from micro G to one G can be even more provocative, as you might imagine, particularly your neurovestibular system, your inner ear uh, is a sensor system. It is seeking signal and uh, it does some alterations to the actual uh, inner part of the ear that allows you to detect gravity and direction and acceleration. And they have gotten larger because they've been seeking signal and couldn't find it. So when you come back down and you're exposed to 1G very suddenly, that's a lot of noise. It's as if the gain was turned all the way up on the system and it's kind of overwhelmed by it. And so very small movements or perturbations of the person uh, can be incredibly provocative and cause a lot of feeling of nausea, nausea or actually frank vomiting. Um, 
So when you think about going to Mars after a six to nine month journey in microgravity, if we don't somehow countermeasure against that more, um, that G transition will be very provocative for the crew. Right now we land people on Earth. We have quite the recovery forces that go out and scoop the crew up. And on Mars, there will not be a greeting committee. So what is the design? How are we going to manage the crew managing themselves during that really rough transition period? So we spend quite a bit of time discussing that. Um, this also segues into our next group, which is human factors and behavioral performance. The psychological effect of, of dealing with this adaptation, the disruption to your body, and the isolation and confinement. Um, the missions that we're talking about for exploration will be more autonomous much more autonomous than the missions may do today. I'm sure your group is familiar with calm delay. Uh, right now we do a lot of our medical care via telemedicine. That will not no longer be an option because of the calm delays. So we have to build the medical architecture that has decision support tools uh, embedded in it so the, the crew can have stuff at their disposal real time. Um, that group human yeah. factors. Hey, yes, this, yes. this is Harley. Real quick question going back going back up one. The uh, human health uh, countermeasures, the folks who, after a long duration trip to Mars, will then – I like the term, very much appreciate the term, a provocative situation when they land on one-third gravity on Mars. Wouldn't that be – and surely your folks, folks you work with, have, have talked about the following possible solution. Wouldn't this be a terrific role – for uh, robotic uh, care and keeping it for, for the robotic partners that are likely to travel along with um, the astronauts on the way to Mars. Yeah, definitely. So our discussion right now, say, with the Mars architecture teams has been a lot about what will be done, what is planned to be done robotically to offload the human. Interestingly enough, the capability will still have to allow the human to interact with its environment. So sitting there doing nothing doesn't really help you get better. Um, right. but, so you have to do little activities. They just can't be – you can't depend on the human as a critical part of it. There have been circumstances where we've been asked to understand the human capability with respect if they could um, come in if there were a failure. So if the automated robotic docking failed, could the human execute a telerobotic uh, part of the operation? Like if they were seated um, – you know, didn't have to turn their head a lot, but could they still operate it given the disruption that they feel? So we've been, we actually did what's called an ISS quick start using a technology called Robot. Um, it's not only was part of a research study, but it's part of operations. It's what the crew trains on for the counter arm. And so we understand that the crew has very, uh, a lot of familiarity with this. They train, they train during the mission to maintain competency. So we kind of can negate the issue of them not being familiar with it, but we test them pre and post. And post, most recently, we did it on landing day. We did it on the tarmac out in Kazakhstan, uh, and then we did it on the stops on the way home to see, even though they were disrupted from a neurovestibular standpoint, could they still operate, you know, a telerobotic? And then the third stage of the failure question in the design was, well, if, if the telerobotic part failed and they had to plug in, I guess, to this power grid, would they be capable of doing an EVA? And we haven't we haven't gone that far, but we did do a post landing test called field test to say exactly given this disruption, even if they're not frankly vomiting, they're, they still can't walk well, they can't coordinate their movements well. When would an EVA be possible? And so we're trying to characterize kind of that time course of recovery, and that if the design, mission operations, vehicle design can all offload the human from those expectations, we can design how to catch the human up in terms of recovery so that at some point, some number of days after landing, they will be much more capable and we'll be confident with the way they'll be able to execute mission requirements. Got it. Thank you. Hey, 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 Jen, can I ask an extension, sort of an extension to that question? This is Dan, about really about work factors. I'm just wondering, looking at your list of elements, where do things like mobility and dexterity and flexibility fit in? Are those are those human factors, or how, where, where do you put those? Yeah, it's a good question. So this is where not one element will capture that um, exactly. So the dexterity, the, the fine motor skills and gross motor skills, well, let me back up a little bit. So human health and countermeasures is going to have a lot of your gross motor component. Um, how you walk, 
you know, ambulate, how right. well you can maintain your balance. Can you climb up a ladder? Can you, can you, um, torque a hatch open? Um, human factors group is the one who's really would focus more in on the fine motor skills, like the more, the robotic operating robot doing telerobotics. Right. Uh, also, Two-point discrimination, so when you talk about the layouts for the displays and controls would fall under the human factors behavioral performance, but up in human health countermeasures would be more about actual visual acuity. So even though we kind of the, – the, the elements have to partner, um, and they often collaborate, integrate, all those things to get at the answer. You say, okay, well, what, what functional endpoint are we trying to achieve with the human or understand if they can achieve it? And then how do we decompose that problem to packets of work? And then which element would be primed for the, to drive the work, whether it be a solicitation or some type of solicitation, a, a research announcement or a, an RFP for a contract. And then once you decompose it, one might be lead, but very much secondary or tertiary elements would, would be contributing to, to what needs to be known and how you decompose the problem. So when you reintegrate the data after you get the results of the study, do we in the end have an answer back for the total human condition or the, you know, the human vehicle interface scenario? So one of the studies that got funded recently was called a, a VN score. So it's a virtual, uh, it's a NASA center. I'm never going to remember the right words for the whole acronym, but it's, um, it's the equivalent of like an NIH program project grant where you ask multidisciplinary teams to self-assemble from a variety of, say, academic institutions and industry to stop, to address the problem in its totality. And it's a group of about eight studies that were funded to work together to address, um, you know, the decision support tools and how you engage humans over time. Because one of, and you see this kind of with the autonomous, you know, leveraging off of terrestrial evidence, like with autonomous cars, um, you can have computers running the show and the human can sit back and just be an observer, but you have to be mindful of the human maintaining situational awareness because at any second the human has to re reconnect and may have to take over. So how do you, how do you balance, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning with human interaction so that you don't, um, I guess you, you, you don't overestimate or underestimate who's doing what when. Um, so when human factors behavioral performance runs their topics and we have to review the outputs to figure out how we're going to apply them, we have to work in concert with the two or three other elements each time. So it becomes a group effort to interpret the data. Okay, that helps a lot. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, no, that was very helpful, I guess, for me to explain what some of the elements do. I mean, we listed stuff there, but it's it's so interconnected each time. It's like we kind of create these segments to kind of make sense of it. But on, on any given day, the discussion has to go across all the elements and the impact. So the next one that's on there is exploration medical capability, which we often refer to as the pointy end of the spear, the group developing and designing the medical architecture uh, to support the crew over these exploration missions. Now, Terrestrially, like, I think to make sense of it, you're like, okay, well, you're familiar with blood pressure, me uh, hardware to measure your blood pressure, you know, MRIs to do imaging. We use ultrasound. There's a lot of technology that's, that, that we're going to clearly almost directly translate. We've done a lot of development on ultrasound. We use it in very non-traditional ways, and we've had to establish the evidence base to interpret the findings. Because here on Earth, it's doctors, you know, in the training and kind of healthcare as it exists today – when you go into the emergency room, you're more likely to get an MRI or a CT scan than an ultrasound. We don't have those other tools, so we say, okay, how, how if we could image something with ultrasound, would you interpret the results so you could get a differential diagnosis? Um, the other aspect of exploration medical capability is about in-situ analysis. Um, and this is something that in our program has become um, kind of our priority for the near future to, to establish it using ISS since it's our most robust testbed was we're not going to get sample return. And, and even if you get sample return, the results are too late, right? The crew needs to be able to find relevant biomarkers in urine or blood, saliva even, um, 
and get feedback, put that in a device that can run the right type of experimental or analysis on it and generate actionable data. Um, so we have a lot of process to go through, and we, we kind of understand what terrestrial biomarkers might be. You know, you get your lipids measured for for primary health care. Um, we can do some stuff with fasting blood glucose, of course. But when someone's ill or injured or having symptoms, you can do more sophisticated testing. You know, you hear things like, you know, uh, a complete blood count. Someone wants, you know, doctors need to know what your white blood cells are doing, what your red blood cells are doing. We need to figure out the right combination of those things that we need uh, on orbit for these missions. But even more so, we need to push the technological edge about getting these things done um, with our limited resources, which are always, you know, they need to be light, lean, <laughs> autonomous, you know, low mass, uh, low power, low volume. And the other issue is the reagents. Um, oftentimes, you know, down here there's a lot of uh, – they, reagents aren't going to be the problem, um, and disposing of reagents aren't going to be the problem. So it's – sorry, I lost my charts. My computer fell asleep for a second. I'm trying to wing them up. Um, so it's – we have – we need reusability. Um, so sometimes it's the base technology is satisfactory, but, um, you know, we have to advance it to a whole new level. So as far as your medical capability – also have to look back at all the data that's coming out of the other elements and say, well, if it's space spaceflight is provoking a different biomarker, and that's what the research side of the house is doing, are they aligned with the in-situ uh, analysis capability that the exploration medical capability folks are, are off developing? And this is where a lot of microfluidics are coming into play, uh, lab on a chip, um, is also something that's in their purview, but they always have to connect back to the other elements. You know, another one, if you think about it with space radiation, um, even though the cancer risk is really a long-term health risk, it's, given the exposures we predict even on the, the Mars, total Mars mission, um, biologically, it, it's very unlikely to actually manifest cancer during the mission. Um, but you will see changes that, again, give you information on the risk of developing not only cancer, but the type of cancer later in life. So right now it's kind of termed liquid biopsy. Um, we could here on the ground start to understand how we could screen uh, for the predisposition for future cancers. But this is a case where not only would we want to screen during the mission, but we also want to design countermeasures because there's a way to biologically improve the body's ability to fend off cells that become damaged that could lead to the cancer in the future. And it's kind of bolstering your own immune system um, and also reducing inflammation is another mechanism to go after that generically improves health, but is one of the the base kind of issues with cancer being a long-term endpoint. So we have to look at both um, the in-mission and the long-term health risk. So we're kind of tracking a lot of different elements of the time course of change for, for both responsibilities. Um, ISS Medical Project is really our implementing arm. Um, they actually recently changed their name to Research Operations and Integration because they're going to be implementing on platforms other than ISS soon. Um, talking to Gateway about what we can do there. Of course, not in the phase one with the Mars or Moon 2024. It's on the ground objective that that is a different profile um, and a different mandate. But as Gateway um, develops and shifts to phase two and future phases where it has more and more capability, we would definitely want to be implementing validation work and continue to do research on Gateway as a, a Mars forward approach. And recently, I say recently, maybe two years ago, they completed, they, right before I joined the program really, um, Human Research Program funded a cooperative agreement called the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. Um, it was awarded to Baylor College of Medicine, um, who's collaborating with Caltech and MIT. Um, they are also a funding entity, but they are really dedicated to be uh, very high risk, the concept of high risk, high reward. Um, HRP tends to be a little bit more conservative and incremental at times. We do, I encourage stratifying the portfolio so they would still have some high risk on our side, but um, given the finite budget and priorities, there is a bit more in the more conservative incremental development program. But this 
translational research institute for space health really has been given the latitude to to do that model of fail fast, fail forward, fail often, try throughput, look at, you know, startups, um, venture capital, um, who are they reaching out to. They're using some different interesting techniques and they run their own solicitations, um, but look back to NASA for what our needs really are. So we're looking for kind of that very disruptive uh, solution coming out of them, um, and we're in touch with them about monthly to see what they're funding and kind of what they're what their investments are paying off in terms of what we're seeing. We're actually evaluating a couple of their technologies that they've invested in for that it's called space-associated neuroocular syndrome, the change in the astronaut eyes. They've they reached out and they have some new tool development that we think could be very beneficial. So slide seven. So now I think I spoke about these hazards before. So of all the risks we look at, we kind of back up and say, well, what are the what are the drivers of the changes and, and the stressors to the human? So we label them altered gravity fields. So again, that was to capture not only say the microgravity, but the G transitions and the partial Gs that that people will be exposed to. Still trying to understand uh, how they affect the human. Uh, hostile closed environment. Um, and that is more about um, having to recapitulate an environment in its totality and clean the air, um, given all the different chemicals and products we use that could off-gas and try to just understand what are the constituents there and then how would they affect the human. Uh, talked a bit about space radiation. We can discuss it more if anyone has some specific questions. Of course, all of our work right now is done in an animal model, uh, and um, we use a couple different types of analogs to try to tease out the different components of the space radiation um, and the biological effect. Um, isolation and confinement. Um, this is one where we've definitely stressed, and they're color-coded. Yellow is your, this is going to be your typical stoplight chart, green, yellow, red. Uh, green, you'll see in the risk breakdown that we think we have a handle on it. We can countermeasure against it. It depends on whether a program can implement those countermeasures or not. Um, yellow means there's still some unknowns, and we're probably not in the best risk posture we can get. Um, but it may be still acceptable. Red clearly indicates uh, we are in an inaccept unacceptable risk posture, and we have more work to do, whether it be understanding the risk better to under characterize the actual risk we're taking. It could be um, the fact that we lack countermeasures or a way to predict an outcome. Um, so there's a lot of different potential implications by the red. The isolation confinement uh, is very challenging. Um, we're talking durations that we don't really have any experience with, and I don't mean just NASA. Um, so we lean on other organizations who may approach longer durations, such as Antarctic isolation, uh, submarines, um, different deployments, but we're still looking at, say, organized teams of people who are sent and isolated for times because there's a, a lot to know not only about the individual but the team composition that to understand whether a team works or not. And then right now we still capture distance from Earth. Um, so to be honest, when we talk a lot of our risks, we often mitigate them, particularly in low Earth orbit, by discussing that you would not lose the crew, there would not be loss of crew, because we would return someone home. Uh, clearly a big, complicated decision, very expensive one. Um, but very quickly when you get into lunar orbit, distance from Earth uh, disables that, that return to Earth capability. Uh, even though we can get back from the lunar surface on the orbit of days or more, depending on where they are, from a medical scenario, um, that is enough that it is no longer a, a viable mitigator. Um, so that'll just become a standard. On slide eight, um, it's just, and I should back up that on slide seven, that is the view um, given to us from the Mars rover of the planet Earth. And just to often sensitize audience <laughs> to how small the Earth will appear if you're there and all the emotional components that someone might go through um, kind of processing the danger and remoteness uh, of the operations at that time. So on slide eight, given that uh, the moon is in front of us and our next destination, uh, to be honest with you, most of our risks sit in the yellow category. Uh, part of it is leaning on the experience base of Apollo, but not in its totality. Um, a lot of it has to do with the mission durations being relatively short right now and the exposures. 
we have uh, put forward a lot of questions we'd like to pursue if we tend if we intend on habitating the moon for long periods of time. It is unclear to us that one six gravity will be enough stimulus to maintain physiological systems in an acceptable manner to perform the job. And that's the other open question. What, what is the expectation of the human? What is the job? Um, and then, of course, at some point, the changes in the adaptation to, say, the moon's the moon surface and the, the habitation system that's designed would be, are there, what are the health issues and how long are you going to keep people there to determine what potential outcomes we have to prepare for? Go to slide nine. Uh, Jan, okay. I have a question sure. on that. Um, in your categories, I don't see any external environment, in particular uh, the lunar dust, which caused uh, so many problems on the Apollo program. Yeah. So right now we capture lunar dust under hostile closed environment when we break down the risks. Um, so it still is acknowledged if we can't engineer it out, you know, if, if it's going to get inside the vehicle, um, what kind of health risk does it pose to the individual? There was a group, and I'll get to the risk in a few minutes, called the Lad Tag group. Tor McCoy actually um, – within the Human Health Performance Directorate has given a couple of talks about that. Um, so it, we are in a position, I think they've characterized the short-term and long-term risks to the degree they, they are satisfied in terms of the Human System Risk Board. Um, so we don't currently have any open work on the lunar dust issue, but I do agree that it's, it's going to be iterative with respect to kind of how is the dust going to be managed or not and how much exposure will the human get. Okay, thank you. Sure. So I've been working on um, some imagery to talk about the multi-hazard effect. So on slide nine, just trying to convey that even though uh, oftentimes we get folks who zero in on one of the hazards and one of the risks, that the human's gonna experience in them all, and, uh, and at some point all simultaneously. Um, and if you if you understand the underlying system and the mechanism by which the human is trying to deal with the stressor, you can quickly see uh, an emerging risk for uh, a synergistic effect. And right now we have a dedicated uh, integrated research project called CBS, and that acronym is short for CNS, behavioral Me behavioral medicine, and sensory motor. And what it's really getting at is the central nervous system. It says that if, if the brain were to become stressed and begin to change in response to space radiation, isolation and confinement, because remember, physiology and psychology are not really separate. So sometimes you have a change in your physiology that causes a psychological change or a cognitive change. Sometimes a psychological or cognitive change can, can force a physiological shift. Um, so order of events needs to be understood a little bit better. Um, but going back to space radiation, isolation and confinement, uh, contaminants, to your point about dust um, in the hostile closed environment, um, how, how when you press all on the human in this many different ways, how does that alter the probability of a negative outcome, health or performance? And how do we, how do we try to quantify the inputs so that we have a chance at more confidently predicting the shift in the outcome. And we have some um, modeling techniques that we use uh, and simulations that we use to try to see if we can, we can understand this level of complexity um, and design some experiments where the stressors are simultaneous. So in the rodent research world, we can do hind limb unloading which is an acceptable analog to an altered gravity, a microgravity kind of exposure causes the headward shift. And you can irradiate those animals. So you can, you can expose them to radiation. We have a GCR simulator now at the Brookhaven National Laboratory, the NASA Space Radiation Lab. Um, and in some ways you can, you can do isolation with them. Um, so we've had various permutations of kind of order of events of the different hazards and looked at the behavioral and cognitive and physical outcomes um, to see if 
if there are magnitudes of change that are different than one would have anticipated from the studies where maybe only one of the stressors were used. I'm going to move on to slide 10 because that takes those hazards, the altered gravity, radiation, distance from Earth, isolation, confinement, hostile closed environment, and starts to populate them with named risks. Um, and I mentioned a little bit of background that these actually came out of prior um, prior documentation, the, the bioastronauts roadmap that existed before H HRP. There's a lot of discussion about lumping and splitting, for lack of a better word. Like, a lot of times we had risk factors that were at the top level, and they were needed to be nested. And there was, there was a bit of work to be done to come down to a, a list of about 30-some-odd risks. Um, and then we characterized as to the primary driver of the risk, so they got put under the hazard bin. And this, again, was just uh, kind of a common taxonomy that we talked to a couple of other groups about and how some of the work might be organized to get done or where the focus areas are, but it should never prevent cross-hazard and cross-risk discussion. And that's a lot of work that I talked to Dr. Mark Shellhammer about, who, who really looks at um, kind of complexity theory and also how do we use um, analysis tools and algorithms to help us tease out relationships that maybe one individual would not be capable of perceiving. Like I can't know the depths in all of the areas that may be required to get you know, it's called like the signal to show itself. There, there can be a lot of noise when you collect the data. Um, and you might be, you know, a PI might, a principal investigator might be uh, really digging in on their hypothesis. But right next to the hypothesis, the data was generated is the real signal. But that's not what they're looking at. So we're, we also collect the data of all the studies that we fund. And we do have the capability to do more, more cross-study analysis given the right tools. There's a little bit of, like, big data um, that we'd like to pursue that we think can make the data that we have acquired even more valuable. So I, I can let you lead, read the list. You guys have the charts. Um, this is all publicly available. The HRP website has a pretty robust presence. And for each of the risks that we track, we do write evidence reports to try to synthesize the information so folks understand our thinking about a risk. I'm going to move on to slide 11 because we take that list of risks by hazards as a program and we have to prioritize. Um, so we take that color coding, the red, yellow, green, which based on, you know, a le likelihood by consequence um, scale and discussion in that human system risk board. So we're not doing this unilaterally. Um, and when something gets dubbed red, you know, if it's in a red category, it's high risk, has high consequences, high likelihood, high consequence. Um, we start mapping it in terms of a portfolio. So those elements have to come up with a strategic plan and often a cross-element strategic plan to get the work addressed. How are we going to develop the knowledge and or countermeasures and or technologies, which um, can be one and the same, to get that risk into an acceptable level? There are areas where we use the ISS as our primary testbed. Um, and then there are areas where we have to use ground-based analogs as our primary test bed. So one of the, the things to keep our eye on is when we will lose access to station as we know it today. Um, can we go back and forth with clearly I'm not going to deorbit station in 2024 or 2020, whatever the date ends up being. But right now we don't pay uh, for access to station. We pay for the science. And then we work with the ISS program. We have priority. Um, to be manifested and have crew time, and we, you know, have to compete with the other users. But the if we were to pay a commercial entity to fly our stuff, it's pretty quickly going to become cost prohibitive for us to use spaceflight ourselves. So we're watching that um, as part of kind of our design of getting our work done. All of the, uh, I think, it's defined on the right as to what our triangles are, what we're trying to communicate across the top are the various um, exploration missions for Orion. Uh, we don't have commercial crew in there right now, and it has not been updated to incorporate the moon. Um, this, these charts preceded kind of the formality of getting Mar moon 2024. Um, the other uh, triangles that are upright with throughout these, they're called path to risk reduction, um, kind of indicate the milestones our groups are trying to come up with because there's also a, an approval process. Of course, you're going to have some decision gates um, for those products to be reviewed 
by the people who need to receive them. And uh, interestingly enough, what you struggle with is if the receiver of our products are medical operations. Medical operations is very much, and rightly so, head down in the mission of today with his ISS. Um, so they may not be ready for something, you know, that is Mars-centric, a Mars mission-centric. So it seems a little out of bounds. So the agency came up with the system maturation teams, SMTs, um, to kind of represent that exploration customer in an intermediate fashion. Um, so for a while, we were working with the crew health and performance, and we saw our, the crew health and performance SMT, um, to have a discussion with them about how do, how do we advance the risk reduction on an area and, and who's going to be the receiver of this. Um, and how do we get that documented so that the functional requirements can take hold when the next mission is designed or when someone actually, the vehicle, say, will begin its pre, pre-phase A design phase. Um, so we kind of track these milestones. We go through them quarterly, um, looking for progress. Our science is done. You know, it's funded three times a year through the NRA, but, again, we have other tools to fund science, even RFP. So you always get this rolling wave of output that um, we're trying to assess. Once a year, we step back and have an investigator workshop in Galveston, um, and it's a four-day, very intensive meeting on the results of, of where our investigators have, have gone so far with the data and kind of our element scientists and my office, the chief scientist office, kind of leading a discussion about, about what that means um, and where we're going in the future with the, the content. Where has the data kind of driven us to go? Okay, Jen, this is Harley again. Um, we've got about 10 minutes ago. We've got, we own this phone line. Sure. We can go after the uh, scheduled uh, end time, but not quite halfway through your slides, and we have only nominally 10 minutes left. Yeah, and these are the most intensive, to be honest. So um, if, if there weren't any big questions about how kind of we break down our risks and do our packets of work, um, I'll just – just move forward, but it, the, the rest are a little briefer because um, on slide 12, we're going to start talking about, I mean, I mentioned a couple times, like ISS as a platform. So a lot of our work, we, we work with space medicine and um, trying to be Mars forward. <laughs> so an ISS really, you know, being in the utilization phase is looking for content, and that's where the example of using robot uh, pre- and post-mission to answer a question, say, that the Mars architecture team had uh, really came into play. Um, of course, we're doing tons of human research on the on the astronauts of today, but there's a lot of work to go into the interpretation of what does that mean for the Mars missions, which are very even longer durations. And it's a lot about getting the right data um, to understand our confidence that we understand the behavior of a system well enough that we can extrapolate out to any duration that the agency may ask about, you know, and when when have we really reached the limits of our knowledge, we can no longer confidently say that we understand about. Because the tangible example I like to discuss with people is bone. Um, we understand a lot about how bone changes, but what we don't really understand is the time course. So um, we need to know a lot more about the time course to extrapolate well um, so now that we have more and more missions that are longer in duration, so we've got a lot of data at four to six months, which was a traditional ISS mission for a crew member. Now we're talking six to 11 or 12 months is becoming more common, and we actually have plans for more dedicated one-year mission studies. But if we can use the mo most robust testing for bone is pre-post. We don't have um, dual X-ray absorptometry on station we're not going to have it on station, um, and there aren't good blood biomarkers to assess bone loss. But if you think about using the same, using different people pre and post to fill in kind of those time points and watch the behavior of bone, particularly, I mean, the vulnerable site for crew members because we're offloaded from gravity uh, is the femoral head, the top of your femur, the trochanter, uh, which is a very particular part of your your femur, and the pelvis. Um, we're looking at the spine a little bit more closely, too, to understand that because it's a, a very particular type of bone called trabecular. And those are the areas are, that are being concerned and potential risk. Not really in the mission, though. Um, even when you talk about partial gravity, these are about returning them to Earth when they come back to 1G and the forces imparted by 1G. So that kind of feeds into our risk analysis. Um, 
So ISS is our primary field research test bed. Go to slide 13. We have delved into omics, understanding someone at a molecular level. Um, a lot of great data has come out of the twin study. Um, it is just the tip of an iceberg because the issue with mo molecularly understanding somebody that's fine, you can document stuff. It's really hard to interpret because we don't have a database that tells us what some of these molecular, sig most molecular signatures mean. So of your 20,000 genes, only about 100 are actually actionable when they code, when they get your code. And that's true for astronauts just like regular people. So you can't use your genome to tell the future. You really can't. Um, in most cases, it's just not possible. And then you talk about gene expression, not just your code, but how does that code express itself in a meaningful way? Gene expression data that came out of the twin study was, again, very interesting incredibly hard to interpret. Uh, it is, your body is adapting. It's doing all the things it should do when put in an extreme environment. So there's no indication any of the expression changes were taking any kind of negative, have any kind of negative implication. Oftentimes what you see in the media is that the results were interpreted in a pathological context, meaning that on earth, in sick people, they say let's they see a certain signature of expression and they might find a commonality between in one pathology um, on earth and then something in spaceflight that also had some change in expression but only one of the points was similar and i will often hear that they immediately go toward the more pathological interpretation the problem is is that in the background there was more not in common that you had to account for. So I've been trying to shift the context with a lot of the, the human spaceflight data that it really, it's not osteoporosis, right? You hear that, I hear that about bone over and over again. The rate of bone loss, negative 1.5% per month is not a calcul, is not data, it is a calculation. They took the pre to post change, which is a negative relationship, divided by the number of months someone was gone and calculated a rate. Well, in the one-year study, which was parallel to the twin study, Scott Kelly did not lose one more, twice as much bone in his one-year one mission than he did in his prior six-month mission. So for him, that rate was cut in half. So it's not a, a negative continuous slope. The curve looks different, you know, from a predeposed data point than just a negative line. So what we have to do is get the data to understand what the line looks like. What is the relationship between pre to post? Because it looks like the bone loss is a little more front-loaded, like it's happening in the first three months of emission, and then your body adapts, and it creates a new balance point. It becomes homeostatic. Now, the question is, if we go out one year, we can characterize that we have experience, but what about three years? Do you hit another kind of transition point when you've offloaded for long enough? And then we get questions like, well, what does one six G gravity exposure mean? What will one third G gravity exposure mean with respect to a system like bone? Will it be provocative enough to try to stop bone loss or to cause bone deposition? That's what we're trying to understand from animal studies. So slide 14, we are planning some exploration missions aboard ISS. We've been working with Dr. Julie Robinson, who's now um, chief, chief scientist, I believe, for HUMD is her title. Um, she comes out of the ISS program, and uh, her and Sam Shamimi looking at ISS and trying to use ISS in a very different way. Um, the ISS program is very interested in how to be used this way, but it, it often, um, you know, can be challenging because it's not designed to be an autonomous vehicle and even the modules. So you say if you want to put people in a smaller, more confined environment, if you want to have calm delay, how you achieve the these other stressors while on station without disrupting all parts of operations. So it's, it's been a lengthy discussion about what can be practically applied and what makes sense to do up there versus what do we really have to do in a ground analog. So I mentioned the robot study was one of them. Another one is we can probably do medical simulations with calm delay or with no calm and start testing some of our tools about decision support um, real time for the crew where no one is doing telemedicine. Again, it would be during a simulation, not an actual medical event. So 
we think we've got a place where we can really capitalize on the use of station, but we're still working on that. Um, on slide 15, we transitioned to a lot of ground analogs to come out of the field research and really target one or more variables at a time rather than 50 variables that we don't control. So space radiation has the NASA Space Research Space Research uh, Space Radiation Lab at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Um, Alter gravity, we still use parabolic flight a bit, and we can do not only zero G flights but partial G flights. We have plans for one next year where we would do uh, kind of a gravity threshold. We would want to look at parabolas of both one third and one six G and the physiological effect. We do isolation and confinement in a couple of areas. One is here at Johnson Space Center in the Human Exploration Research Analog. Another one is in Moscow at a facility called NEK that's run by the Institute of Biomedical Problems. Um, we also use NVHAB, which is down in the middle, bottom left next to your G, which is a facility at uh, the DLR Institute in Cologne. We've done head down bed rest. They have chambers uh, where we can do head down bed rest and manipulate the environment, say the CO2 level, which we did uh, two years ago. Um, and they also want to offer the capability to do isolation and confinement there. There's some interesting, interesting facility. Um, and then again, a hostile environment that is isolated and confined uh, down in Antarctica. So we partner with the National Science Foundation on the use of um, the U.S stations in Antarctica, South Pole, McMurdo. There are a couple others that are on, on the, the sea level. We've also partnered with some of our international partners um, to use Newmeyer Station, and we've been in discussions with the Australians uh, about their facilities down in Antarctica. Some of them have very small teams. So we have some more slides on 16 about the Spadish Radiation Lab, more detail on each of the analogs. Um, and the one thing I'm not going to have time to talk to you guys about because I know it's your clock, on slide 21 is more detail about uh, the space-associated neuroocular syndrome. Um, and this is one of the key ones in terms of a physiological shift driving what appears to be um, a process that is concerning, um, but right now in low Earth orbit is very, very manageable and recoverable but we don't know the system well enough to predict whether it will remain that way for something like an exploration mission. So this is one of our highest priority physiological areas that we're studying right now. And I think I'm gonna end on 21 to be respectful of your time. And I think you guys are aware of kind of the path forward with uh, near-term moon missions um, and then the advancement of Gateway. And we've been feeding into to that program to make sure we're positioned to uh, leverage off of that for Mars. Excellent. Great, Jen. This is excellent. This, this is terrific. Actually, tell you what, I'm going to play the role of moderator, senior moderator. Could you say a few more words? It happens to be something I've been interested in for a couple of decades since the gateway was first proposed. On page 23, could you take a minute or two to describe how you all, from your perspective, HRP, sees the value of gateway? Sure. So gateway is really going to be our first experience to have people habitating in the most complex hazardous environment where we'll have microgravity and deep space radiation simultaneously. Um, it, based on the orbit they picked also uh, discussions about the extensive comm delay and often not being in view of the Earth very much. So it really hits on the key areas that we think represent the most complex environment to understand the human condition. Um, you know, if the resources allow us with the configuration of gateway, we could partner human studies with other model model systems, meaning lab, you know, I mentioned lab on a chip. So there's also tissue and organ on a chip because one of our our bigger constraints with with animal studies, rodent studies in particular, is translatability. So we can manipulate the animal more, we can do destructive analysis, we can do lifespan studies that we can't do on humans. But then it's always challenging to say the difference between how do we bridge that difference between a rat or a mouse and a human because it's not directly applicable. And that's plaguing, you know, terrestrial medicine and research as well. But with the invention of and the valid, the continued validation of lab and, or organs and tissue on a chip, those are actual human tissues and you can connect them and essentially you can recapitulate very sophisticated aspects of a human 
um, using these chips. And I think, and they're very small, very lean. <laughs> I mean, we could get up, up on Gateway, and I think we can make significant progress understanding the complex environment using the, the chip scenario as a model organism to interpret really where we're going with the human limitations. Okay. Thank you so much. This was as terrific as uh, and as informative as I was hoping it would be. Sorry for the little bit of a hassle in getting us uh, getting us uh, started, but not too bad. That started only a couple minutes late. So thank you all. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com/spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.